It is actually bitter cold last weekend. And what you do there is you play sports and you go sledding and you do a polar plunge and, it's, and you listen to um, speakers and it was such an, an awesome time in the Lord. And I'm happy to say that both the girls and the boys basketball teams got in the final four. To, yep, we were very excited about that. To be fair, the girls only had four teams and we did come in fourth place. But the boys did um, actually really well. But even more than that, um, we had a girl... Um, come to the snow camp that has um, never received Christ, and she became a, a Christian this weekend. And that's why we do this. It was, it was awesome. So today, I want to talk to you about peace and if we have peace in our lives. And I want to tell you that David and I are at a stage in our lives where we have taught three out of four of our children how to drive. And if anything's going to test your peace as much as that, I don't know what else is there. But we did three, um, three to the four kids, and I want to focus today on teaching Mason how to drive as opposed to teaching Avery how to drive. Now, Mason just turned 16 in November, and he went down and he got his Connecticut permit to drive. And we put Mason in the driver's seat, and off he went. He used the gas appropriately. He knew how to brake appropriately. He merged on the highway really well. He drove really well with very little instruction. The only thing that we really had to correct him on is that every now and again, when traffic would come towards him on the other side, he would veer to the right, and we would have to correct him and get him back to center and go forward. And so we would be driving, and a large vehicle would come, and sometimes we'd hit the rumble strips, and sometimes we had to watch out for bikers, but pretty much Mason got the gist of driving. Now, Avery, on the other hand, she was our first, and David decided to take her to start her in the cemetery. So he gets her in the car, and she gets the driver's seat, and she turns on the car. And what you could describe as a bat going out of hell is what exactly happened. Avery floored that gas and braked so poorly that before David could even give direction, she was tumbling over gravestones, she was going on the grass, and the person who owned the cemetery got in the car, screeching around, swearing, and telling them to push over because clearly someone's intoxicated behind the wheel of a car. So David thought, we need to start back at the beginning, and he took her to an, an empty parking lot, and he said to her, I need to teach you the basics. We need to get you to know what is in this car and how to use it. So he started and said, Avery, how many pedals do we have in the vehicle? And my daughter actually physically pushed her seat back, crouched down, and counted three pedals, which would be right if she were driving a standard, but she was not. <laughs> the correct answer was two, the gas and the brake. So he went over every bit of the car, the, the blinkers, the emergency brake, how to use everything properly. And they started in the parking lot. And she started to get pretty good. She started to, to get the gas, the feel of it, and to get how you brake appropriately. And it was in January. And as you know, when it snows, when they plow, they have big, huge snow piles. And as David got more comfortable, he started to relax a little bit until he looked up and saw her heading right to one of the snowbanks. And he said, Avery, do you see what's in front of you? And her answer was, yes, Daddy, it's snow. And he knew right then and there she thought it was going to be light 
and fluffy like a cloud so she could go through it. And he said that he has never experienced being on the Titanic, but he got that feeling that day as they careened right into this iceberg in the middle of the parking lot. He then had to explain to her, what are the dangers on the outside of the car? So on the inside and the outside, and when she finally did get on the road, she had to wear a ring on her right hand to let her know what side of the road to go on. But when the traffic came toward her, she veered to the right, and we had to center her and get her forward. See, that is us, spiritually speaking. You see, when we come to the Lord, the moment we accept Christ Jesus, we get our Connecticut permit. We have all of the benefits of being on that road, but some of us need a little bit more guidance in what's in this Bible than others. But we're all on the same page. And spiritually speaking, when we all go to the right, that is our lack of peace in our lives. That is a barometer that God has given to us to know that there's something might be off in our lives and that he wants us to come back center and go forward to him. The Bible talks a lot about peace, and the problem is not a lot of us have it. If I ask my youth group, how many of us are struggling with anxiety? How many of us have peace? I'm going to tell you, most of my youth group kids will admit to not living in peace. And if I asked for a show of hand here, I bet 99.9 .9 of us would raise our hand and say, we are not living in perfect peace. So let's see what the Bible is saying about peace. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Perfect peace. I mean, don't we want that? Isn't that what the Lord has promised us? And we don't have it. Philippians 4, 7. Do not be anxious about anything. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. God does not always remove the mountains. God is not going to make your life perfect. God is not going to change your circumstance so that you can go through life unharmed. But he promises that you have the ability to have peace that no one understands. So when your world starts crashing and you're still worshiping and you're still walking in the things of the Lord and people are like, how is she doing it? That is the peace that God promises us. John 14, 27. These is exactly what Jesus said. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives, but I, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, and neither let them be afraid. This is Jesus Christ himself saying, you've got my peace. It's yours. I'm leaving it with you. It is your peace. So why are we struggling the way that we do in this area? So I want to talk about two areas that I think that we struggle with that we allow us to veer off to the right, and that God is saying today, let's get you back to center. And the first one is unrepentant sin. And now, I'm not talking about the big ticket items. We all know what those are. The big sins that everyone can say, black and white, you know what they are. I'm talking about the things that creep into our lives slowly, the things that slowly fade us away for what God has wanted us to do, the things that take our eyes off the Lord and onto other things in a different perspective. So Lamentations 3.40 says this, Let us test 
and examine our ways and return to the Lord. The Bible talks a lot about examining our hearts. And he does that because little things come in slowly. And one of the biggest things that I see in the church is that you can get this different perspective of at least I'm not as bad as. You know, I may gossip, but at least I'm not getting drunk every weekend, am I right? I'm not doing that. You know, I may be so negative and complaining every day of my life, but I'm not cheating on David, am I right? And the problem with constantly comparing yours into others is that you're bringing in the same spirit that the Pharisees brought in. See, I would much rather talk about your sin than mine. And I would much rather talk about the sins I don't commit than the ones that I do. The Pharisees stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, and we do this. We do this in our lives. And we slowly change our perspective from one who wants to love people and do God's work to the Pharisees of self-centeredness and self-righteousness and pride. We have to be careful in that area. In Psalms, it talks about cherished sin. It says, if you have cherished sin in your heart, God doesn't even listen to your prayers. And when I, when I read that, I struggled because who, what good Christian here loves sin? See, when you say cherished, I think love. And I can honestly say that there is no sin that I do that I love. But if you look at the definition of cherished, it's very different. It says to hold on dearly or to keep in one's mind. So what this looks like is you're sitting in service and Doug is doing a great talk on unforgiveness and laying it down. And so the Holy Spirit comes to you and he says, you know, that person who hurt you 30 years ago that damaged you so greatly, I want you to forgive them. And you instantly say, absolutely not. See, that person hurt me and damaged me to this day. I'm a different person because of what that person did to me. I'm not forgiving that. That would make it seem like it's okay that they did that. And that anger would be gone if I forgive. And you're asking me to love them? Absolutely not. Mm -mm. That's cherished sin. That is cherished, unrepented sin. See, God wants to reveal these things to you so that he can heal you. And when we shut the door on what the Holy Spirit is doing, it's saying that he's not even listening to us. When the Holy Spirit comes to you and says, I want your kids. I want you to lay your kids at the altar. Ma'am, as the mom, I'll give you anything other than my kids, God. I'll give you anything. That, that's cherished sin. You've got to lay it down before the Lord so that he can have all of your life. You know, a few years ago, there was a gang that would go through neighborhoods, and they would start on one side of the street, and they would literally go through every single house, every single driveway, and they would break into your house, into your sheds, into your homes, and they would just ransack everything. And our neighborhood got hit, and they got to Kyle's car, my son Kyle, and they took his backpack and 
his Celtics bag, and they actually went into Bud Duplin's car and they found a bunch of old coffee cups and Christian CDs, so they left those, but they did, they did steal Kyle's bags. And we didn't think much of it. Kyle came to us and we said, you know, it's a learning lesson, you gotta lock your doors. We didn't think anything of it until that night. We locked all the house up and we went to say goodnight and Kyle came to our bedroom and he said, Mom, Dad, our house keys were in my backpack. They have our keys and they know where we live. The enemy had our keys. Same thing spiritually. When we hold unforgiveness, when we hold unrepentant sin, you are handing the enemy the keys. He opens the door, he comes into your life, and he rips your peace away. And there's nothing you can do about it. He's got your keys. You cannot block the door. There's nothing you can do except to repent and change those locks. Change the locks. Now, the second area that I feel that we really struggle in is knowing who we are in the Lord, knowing our identity. If we do not identify ourselves as a child of God and what that means, we will spend the rest of our time here looking for identification. Who are we? Because that is how you see these women who are so desperately trying to be good mothers. And you see these men so desperately trying to be good workers. And you see us all trying desperately to be good Christians. See, if we put Jesus Christ first, if we know who we are as a child of God, everything else is going to follow. Seek first the kingdom. Everything else will follow. We have to first know who we are. Jesus Christ himself lived on this earth for 33 years, he made some chairs, he put some roofs on, he did some carpentry with his dad, and then when he was baptized, his father spoke from heaven, and he said, this is my son, who I love, and with him I am well pleased. He had done nothing yet, except for be who he was, a child of God, like us. See, he didn't have to strive for God to identify him. He didn't have to heal three people, raise four dead, people from the dead, a couple blind people, and then God said, this is my son. No, no, no. He said, this is my boy, just because he's my child, like us. And if Jesus Christ has to be identified, how much more do we need that? How much more do we need to walk in that? I, I want to talk to you about Moses, because Moses, I think, struggled with this more than any other person in the Bible. He was, let me tell you a little bit of background, I'm sure most of you know it, but Moses was born in a time where the Israelites were in complete and total captivity. The Egyptians got them, and it was to the point where um, the Hebrew population was growing so fast that they said, you know what? Let's kill all the babies, all the baby boys. So the moment Moses was conceived, there was fear attached and rejection. That mother must have gone through nine months just praying for a girl so she could keep her baby. And when Moses was born, a boy, rejection, hatred, all of that stuff, she had to hide him for three months 
And then she put him in a basket, prayed over him, and sent him down the Nile. And as we know, the Pharaoh's daughter got him. So now he's living in a palace. So he came from nothing, a poor Hebrew boy, and now he's living on the top of the food chain as an Egyptian. But he's watching his people get beat and hurt and mistreated. And so who does he identify with until he gets to the point where he gets so angry and his, his frustration grows so much, he kills an Egyptian. And then he's got to flee because Pharaoh is after him. So you've got this boy. Is he a Hebrew? Is he an Egyptian rich guy? He is a murderer, and now he's a fugitive. He's got a lot of hats he's wearing. Which one does he identify with? So God shows up. Now, back in that time, the Holy Spirit was not for everyone. So now we get the ability to pray, and we can feel the presence of God, not just on church, but every single day when we open our Bible and we put some worship music on. But then it was different. They just, they just stood in the truth, and they kept walking. So when God showed up, it was miraculous. So God shows up to Moses, and he's like, Moses, you're my man. You are the one I want to set my people free. He had so many other people to choose from. I mean, the population of the Hebrews was so great. He had so many people to choose from. And he chose Moses, a fugitive and a murderer. That's who he chose? That gives hope for you and I. The first thing Moses says to God, who am I? Who am I? Now, I relate to this very, very well because when I stand in front of your youth group every week and I teach, I think, who am I? When I have to get up here and teach you, who am I to do this? Because you know what? Like Pharaoh, like Moses running from Pharaoh, I know what it's like. I didn't run from Pharaoh, but I ran from the police. I know in my life what my past has been like. I know that I might not be a murderer, but I know what sin is. And who am I to stand up here and tell you about the word of the Lord? I get where Moses is coming from. I understand when you don't know who your identity is. And if it is not firmly established in the Lord... You feel unstable in all of your ways. You feel double-minded, and you are continually feeling powerless against sin, against anything that the enemy throws at you because you don't know who you are. Now, the last time I talked, I told you about my dog, Benny, the service dog that went bad. Well, what I didn't tell you is when I went to David and I said, listen, I'm thinking about getting another dog, he said... I don't care which kind you get, just don't get a pit bull. Don't get a pit bull. Because we've read all the reports, we've watched all the news media that these dogs are strong and they're vicious and you'll train them and then one day over uh, dinner they're going to clamp onto your neck and not let go. We've watched Judge Judy. Judge Judy hates pit bulls. Like, we know. Okay, so I said to David, I said, I will not get a pit bull. So we go to the pound, we pick out this hound mix, we bring Benny home. And as he starts growing, I'm like, man, there's some characteristics we've never had in a dog. Like, his jaw starts here, but it, like, wraps around his entire head. And I'm like, 
man, we've never had a dog with a jaw like that. And as Benny grew, he didn't really grow tall. He grew wide. And he grew strong. And he was stronger than any dog I have ever had. And I thought, I think we got ourselves a pit bull. So I went and I got a uh, DNA test for dogs. And I got my dog down, tackled him on the bed, lifted his huge jawed cheek, took a Q-tip, just like a Law & Order SVU, swabbed it out, sent it out for testing. And sure enough, I have a pit bull service dog that does no service. <laughs> None. Now, what you don't know is that I have a nine-pound cat that has no claws, and I have a 13-pound dog that has no teeth. And then I have a 60-pound pit bull. And every morning, I feed the animals, all three of them. And we put three dishes down, and the cat comes out, and the 13-pound dog comes out, and Benny goes and sits in a corner, because he's not allowed to eat yet, per the animals. And the cat comes over, and they, they both eat their food, and then if they're still hungry, they will go to Benny's food, and they will eat what they want of his. And when they are done and they have left the kitchen, the pit bull is allowed to come out and have his breakfast. Why is that? Because Benny doesn't know his authority. He doesn't know that in one bite he could snap the dog and the cat and it would be over. He doesn't know who he is like us. You see, when we do not walk in the things of the Lord and know our authority, we are a pit bull sitting in a corner letting the enemy take us out with no claws and no teeth. The Lord is calling us to rise up and say, enough of this, enough of this. The enemy has no teeth. The enemy has no claws against you, yet we're cowering in a corner, not walking in where he wants us to walk. Enough. We have to know our, our authority, and that comes from knowing that we are children of the Most High, that we are children of God. We must know this. And it has to be a decision. You have to make this your decision to say, today is the day I am a child of God and I will walk in that. And it not only changes your life, but it changes the lives around you. Now, when my son Kyle was about um, a junior in high school, and let me tell you, when I talk about Avery driving and Mason driving, that really represents Avery is in the world. When you come out of the world, you don't know what the Bible says and you have to learn that process. And Mason, you know, he represents the second and third generation Christians. And let me tell you, the second and third generation Christians are some of the hardest people to reach because they think they have it all together. But every single one of us need to have a moment with the Lord where we bow our knees and we say, you are my father and I need a savior. Yes. So when... When my son Kyle, and my kids are uh, no exception, they have seen what David and I have walked, and they have to then choose for themselves. Do they believe it, or do they think of something else? And we have to allow them and the Holy Spirit to work on our kids' lives. It's not under our control. And the same with my, my kids as well. And Kyle, when he was about a junior in high school, sophomore and a junior in high school, he decided, you know what? 
I want my identification to be an arrogant, cocky basketball player. That's who I want. That is what I'm putting on, and that is who I would like to try on for size. I mean, I love God. I mean, and Kyle's a little sweet boy. If you all know him, he is in every youth group activity. He was, he could, you know, quote half the Bible. He is a good boy, but he needed to know who he was. He had to choose who he was going to be and who he's going to follow. And, and he chose to be a big, arrogant, cocky basketball player. And he went to this one particular game, and it was against Torrington. And Torrington and Cornerstone had had this long rivalry, this long um, withstanding bad blood, you know, who is better than who. And um, he went to this game, and the, the nature of cornerstone basketball is very different than any basketball you'd ever see. First of all, they really want to stress respect and Christian character. So if you go to a Celtics game and people go to the line for a foul shot, you're screaming and raising banners and you're booing and you're freaking out. Not so in the Christian realm of sports. In the Christian realm in sports, for some reason, I don't know who wrote this rule, but when the opposite team is doing a foul shot, it must be as silent as a prayer meeting. Like it, you cannot, and if you don't even, if you're not really watching the game and you're talking to your friend, it goes so silent that all of a sudden you're screaming and you're like ashamed because you've broken the silence. Like it's pin drop silent. Am I even exaggerating? So this boy goes up to the foul line. It's toward the end of the game. The game is on the line, and this other team, the boy goes up on a foul line. And he gets in position, and he does the two dribbles, and just as he's about to release it, my sweet boy does just enough to knock him off of his game, but not loud enough so that the coach or his parents hear. Now, what Kyle did is not a sin, but the spirit behind it was disrespect, rebellion, and arrogance. And he knew exactly what he was doing. So the boy missed the shot. He does it again. Same outcome. Waits for that second. Makes that noise. Misses the foul shot. Well, another boy on the team approached my son, and he said, hey, could you not do that? That is just, it's just rude, and it threw him off. And, I, and I'm just saying man to man, can, can you not do that? And my son looked at him with his little blonde hair and said, oh, I will stop doing that when you stop acting like a little brat. Now, I am PGing this because I'm, an altar, I'm on an altar of God, but the vulgarity and the profanity that shot out of my little sweet boy's mouth is not even allowed up here. And basically what Kyle said is, I'm in charge. See, I'm this big basketball player I am arrogant, and I am throwing down the gauntlet. You want to go? So the game is over, and they have Christmas break, and now Kyle knows that that boy is going to rile all of Torrington up because Kyle is riling all of his buddies up. Oh, they're coming at us hard because, of course, you can't talk to another man in that tone. You cannot speak to someone in that way without repercussion. So they go to Christmas break, first game, Torrington. Kyle's acting especially arrogant that day because he is ready and he cannot wait 
to, to literally annihilate them in their home court with his buddies. He's ready for this. And he walks into the gym with his buddies in his little high school jacket looking so big and bad. And the boy sees him. And he makes eye contact with him. And he hightails it over to Kyle. And he looks right at him. And he puts his arm around him and says, how was your Christmas, buddy? And at that exact moment, the Holy Spirit revealed to Kyle that this is what it looks like to be defined first by your Father in heaven and second as a basketball player. And this is the moment when the Holy Spirit said, this is what I'm calling you to do, and this is, calling, this is who I'm calling you to be. It changed his perspective forever. In that one moment, that scripture, God's kindness leads to repentance. That boy looked and showed God's grace when not many others would. But God called him to do that. I have preached about this story so many times that what that boy did has a testimony in heaven and it has changed numerous people's lives, not just Kyle's, but numerous people's lives. It changed his perspective forever. And Kyle said, you know... I want to be a follower of Christ first and then a basketball player. Moses went to God and, and said, okay, what's this plan? You want me to go to Pharaoh. You want me to set your people free. How are we doing this? And God was so gracious. God said, listen, here's the plan. I got a foolproof plan. And he gave him miracles and this is the best part about God. He let Moses practice the miracles. Like it's one thing to, to, for someone to say you have the power, but he actually let him test him out. He said, Moses, take your staff, throw it down. It was a snake. He grabs it, back to his staff. And then he said, put your hand in your pocket. Puts his hand in his jacket, comes out with the world's most deadly disease ever, leprosy. And in that time, it wasn't that it was just so painful. You were rejected for your entire life. Like this is a lifelong disease, no cure. And God says, put it back in, puts it in, completely clean again. Now that right there, you would think he'd be like, I am so in, this is going to be great. If I can make leprosy come and go and have snakes everywhere, like I am so excited to be part of this. I am so excited that you called me to be the leader. Like this is going to be great. But instead, Moses says, um, excuse me, did you know that I don't talk really well? Did, did you know that? And God is like, yeah, I made you like that. I made you like that. He made you with your specific shortcomings for a reason. And when the enemy comes at you and says, your shortcomings are your weakness, you need to look at the enemy and you say, no, my power, his power is made perfect in my weakness. When I am strong, weak, he is strong. I'm taking back my peace. I'm going forward. When the enemy comes to you and says, you know, you are always going to be at this dead-end job and you are never going to make ends meet and you are always going to be stuck exactly where you are at, you say no. 
My God has a plan for me in my life. My God has given me a hope and a future. I'm taking back my peace. I am a child of God. When the enemy says to you, people don't know what you're really like. People don't know how bad of sins you have. If anyone ever knew, there's no way they could forgive you. You are too far gone. You say no. He has died for my sins. He has redeemed me from the pit, and he walks with me daily. And when you think you cannot walk one more step, when life gets so hard, when life gets too difficult, you say no, because we are more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors. We take back our peace and we get into the center and we go forward. Now, I want to tell you, Kyle, to this day, he still struggles with this. He still struggles because the enemy has a cloak of his old identity just ready and waiting for him to slip it back on. It is not a one and done thing. It is a process of coming closer and closer to the Lord. But what he does and what God does when he reveals things that we need to lay down is that he heals it. And what he does is he looks and he says, okay, I know I'm struggling with this. So before every basketball game, Kyle finds another person on the team and they pray together. It's still a struggle, but it's one that has already been won. And so today... When we're going to have the prayer team come up. And if there are things in your life that have been holding you back, if there's sin in your life, and today you're saying, I am done with this. I am claiming my peace. I am not going to allow the enemy who has no teeth and no claws to intimidate me any further. I'm taking my peace and I'm going center then come forward and people will pray for you because today is a defining day in your life. Let's turn the corner as a church. Let's turn a corner. No more to the enemy. No more. Amen. Thank you. 